0: We're going to continue in Mark's gospel this morning, so I hope you've been able to find Mark 12 by now. And today we come to the next passage, which is the passage that deals with the widow's might. It does deal with giving, and so we'll be talking a little bit about that, but it deals with more than just giving. You see, this passage is not just a passage about giving, but it's a passage about great faith. As well, And so, let's turn our attention to the passage, and we find it in Mark chapter 12, verses 38, down through the end, verse 44. And that we might honor the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me once again as I read that passage for us? Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. The Word of God says, He also said in His teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, "'Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others.'" For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Thank you. Please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. The grammar nerd in me has always liked jokes or, or lines that are play on words. Things, things like, why, why can't a leopard play hide and seek? Well, it's because he's always spotted and uh, I just love stuff like that. And then there's the question, can a kangaroo jump higher than the Empire State Building? And the answer, of course, is, well, of course he can, because the Empire State Building can't jump. And so, yeah, a kangaroo could jump higher. Of course, we can hear the play on words in those examples, but sometimes you have to, to read it to be able to see it. And so, back that uh, slide up one, if you will, uh, Let's let's go back because I want you to see. Yeah, I want you to see the title of the message there on the screen The Widow's Might. So when you look at that, you you might think that there's a typo in the message because we're talking about the widow's might, M I T E. But today I've titled this The Widow's Might, M I G H T. And it's not a typo because I propose to you that what we're going to see today is what makes this widow a woman of great faith. We're going to see her might. And along the way, we're also going to see some folks who are just the opposite, the scribes, people who claim to be guardians of the faith, but they're anything but that. Now, before we dig into the text, let's Uh, take just a moment and and give just a little bit of background. Uh, Jesus had been questioned by a scribe because we're talking about scribes here today. Jesus had been questioned by a scribe back in verse 28. If you look back there, you'll see that the scribe asked what the greatest commandment was. And and as we've seen the last several weeks, this is a section where Jesus is enduring ongoing conflict with the religious leaders we've seen where they tried to trip him up in verses 13 through 17 with a question about taxes. And then in verses 18 through 27, a, a question about levirate marriage where a woman was hypothetically married to seven brothers. And that was followed by this question we're referring to here in verse 28 about the greatest commandment asked by a scribe that Jesus addressed in verses 29 through 34. And then there was a the statement about the identity of the Messiah that we looked at last week in verses 35 through 37. Now, the scripture, doesn't indicate that was in response to a question that came in the context of Jesus teaching in the temple. So it could have been teaching that came in response to a, another attempt at trick question by the scribes, but probably not because as we saw in verse 34, the scripture says that by that point, no one dared to question him any longer. So more likely, this was just part of the teaching of Jesus as he taught that day. Either way, we're seeing this ongoing pattern of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And now we find ourselves in verse 38 where Jesus is issuing a warning against the scribes. And just like the statement about the Messiah being the son of David, this is almost certainly just part of the teaching of Jesus and not a response to another question. This is most likely a question aimed at the scribes in general, not specifically at the questioning scribe who asked the question about the greatest commandment in verse 28. Not against him individually. In fact, if you remember the context, Jesus told that particular scribe in verse 34, Listen, you're not very far from the kingdom of God. It would seem quite strange to tell somebody they were not very far from the kingdom of God and then just four verses later start issuing this strong of a condemnation that we see here. That's why I'm sold on the fact that Jesus isn't still speaking to this one individual scribe, but rather he's speaking to the group known collectively as the scribes. It's kind of like speaking about false preachers today. We all know that there are preachers that are out there that are preaching false doctrine. All you gotta do is get online turn on your TV, you can hear all kinds of false teaching going on today. And we certainly, rightfully so, speak of the damage that 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 kind of preaching does and how we should avoid that kind of preaching. But that doesn't mean that we should stay away from all preaching. That doesn't mean that Jason and Alan shouldn't have gone to T4G this week because there they didn't hear false preaching. There they heard good, solid, gospel-oriented preaching. You see, there were good scribes and there were bad scribes. Just as today there are good preachers and there are bad preachers today. While the scribe who was close to the kingdom may have not been so bad as a group, the scribes were way off the mark. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, if we go all the way back to chapter 8, verse 15, we see where Jesus warned against the scribes' teaching. He warned against what he called the leaven of the Pharisees. Maybe you say, wait a minute, Mark, he's talking about Pharisees there, not scribes. Well, I think he's talking about the scribes there. Because not all Pharisees were scribes, but all scribes were Pharisees. And the scribes were the ones who were the primary teachers and interpreters of the law. Originally, their function was simply to copy and preserve Scripture. But that evolved into a role of interpreting the Scripture as well. But just like Jesus said to the Sadducees, which we saw several weeks ago, I think he would have also said to the scribes. That's what we saw in verse 24. You're mistaken. You don't know the scripture or the power of God. That's what Jesus said to the Sadducees. And he would have equally said that to the scribes. And now, here we find Jesus in the passage before us today, not only speaking about their inept exegesis, but he's speaking directly against their character as well. So let's build the truth of what we see here today around the two sections of this passage, two two points to today's message, two things that we're going to look at. The first section is verses 38 through 40, and the second section is verses 41 through 44. So notice first with me today a warning that's issued We see it in verses 38 through 40. The basic truth that we see here is that religiosity is a poor substitute for relationship. Because you see, the truth is the scribes were good at religion. They were really, really good at religion. But they knew absolutely nothing about relationship. They had show, but they had no substance. Mark is really only giving us excerpts of everything that Jesus said here. In fact, in the parallel passage of this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 23, Matthew expands this out to 39 verses with what Mark only gives us in three verses. So this warning is pointed and it's piercing here in Mark's gospel, but it's prolonged and it's pounding in Matthew's gospel. He goes on and on and on about it. Jesus says that these scribes devour widows' houses. What in the world is that all about? What does he mean when he says they devour widows' houses? Well, as I said earlier, one of the original roles of the scribes was to preserve and copy the scrolls. Certainly, that included the scrolls of what we now know as our Old Testament. That was their scripture in the day, and they were the ones who copied and preserved that. But the scribes not only copied scripture, they also wrote and recorded deeds and wills as well. And so they would often play on the fears and the superstitions of widows convincing them to, to deed their house over to the temple. And don't think for a moment that these scribes didn't personally profit off of that kind of activity, because they certainly did. So, this is certainly probably what Jesus is talking about here. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern. Seminary compares this to modern televangelists who take widows' social security checks and sometimes convince them to donate what little life savings they have to their ministry because why should that widow have $10,000 in her bank account when their ministry only has $36.7 million in its bank account? I mean, give give me what you have as well so we can have just a little bit more in our account. That tends to be the the attitude and, and the approach of so many televangelists Today, by their emotional manipulation, they literally devour these poor widows and sometimes widowers. This condemnation of these scribes that, that Jesus is issuing here is, is completely in keeping with God's perspective that we see multiple times. Throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you two examples. I could give you dozen upon dozens, but I'll leave that to you to, to research on your own. But let me just give you uh, two examples from the prophet Isaiah, one of them positive and the other negative. Let's start with the positive in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Early in his prophetic career, this is what Isaiah said, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Folks, God cares about widows. God cares about orphans. God cares about other vulnerable peoples. You can argue that he doesn't until you're blue in the face, but you would be totally wrong. You cannot read scripture and come to any other conclusion except God cares about those who are down and out. God cares about those who who really can't help themselves. But Isaiah would later go on and say in Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2, he would say, Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. Woe awaits those who would... Take advantage of vulnerable people groups that God holds close to his heart. Those who would devour widows' houses, as Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 12. This was a lesson that the scribes certainly needed to learn. You see, Jesus is warning us here, I believe, to guard against privilege, position, and pretension. Because the inevitable result of seeking those kinds of things instead of seeking him will be punishment. Look at what he pointedly says in verse 40. These will receive harsher judgments. But before we move on to our, our second section, let me just ponder with you some of what Jesus is, is condemning in the scribes here. I, I want to do this because I, I do it more for me than for you. Because I know for me personally, it is so easy to fall into this kind of thinking and self-perception. And really, if we're honest, it's a trap that every one of us need to guard against. We need to not be people who, who give in to privilege, to position, to, to pretension. So, so let's just be reminded for just a moment today of what it is that Jesus actually deplores. Because when we find this taking place in our life and, and rearing its ugly head in our life, we can be assured that it makes Jesus sick to his stomach. And he, he doesn't like when he looks at us and he sees this in our life. This is why we need to die daily as Paul said in Corinthians. We, we need to get these kinds of things out of our life. First of all, Jesus could care less about our privilege. He speaks of how the scribes go along in long robes and they want greetings and they want premier seating. May, may I just say that there are some privileges that go along with, with being in ministry? See, like I said, this is more for me than it is for you. And, and there are some privileges that go along with, with being a pastor. But But if we're in the ministry because we want the privileges, then we've missed the point. We have just missed the point. Let me just give a practical example here. I am so glad that Leonardtown Baptist Church has never had a pastor's parking spot. You can pull in this parking lot and you can drive around all you want. And you're never going to find a sign that says reserved for pastors. Like I said earlier, I'm, I'm in a different church most every Sunday. And honestly, it just irritates me to pull into a church. And as I'm pulling up, I see right there by that front door a big sign that says reserved for pastor. You know what I do when I'm preaching there that day? I go to the farthest end of the parking lot that I can find. And I park there and I walk past 20 or 30 open spots if I have to. Just to kind of make a point and remind myself that I don't deserve that kind of privilege. No pastor, in my opinion, deserves that kind of privilege. I, I, I'm probably you know, meddling a little bit too much here in some churches. And, and I'm sure that there are good intentions. So I'm sure that there's no um, bad or ill will that's involved in that. But we just don't need that kind of privilege. And I am so glad that that is not the heart of my pastor. I'm thankful that we have two pastors at this church that want to make much of Jesus and little or nothing of themselves, Amen? amen? Jesus could care less about our privilege. Don't be like the scribes and focus inordinately on your privilege, whatever that privilege may be. Secondly, not only could Jesus care less about our privilege, Jesus could care less about our position, We've already mentioned the greetings in the marketplaces that these scribes crave. This is similar to those in ministry who like to be called Dr. So-and-so, or even Reverend. I've had occasions over the years where people have periodically asked me what I'd like to be called, and I understand the intent of the question. They simply want to be respectful. And my response usually goes something along the lines of, well, my mother named me Mark, and that's what she's called me my whole life. So I I guess you could probably call me Mark as well. And sometimes people look at me and say, oh, I could never call my pastor by his first name. I'll just call you Pastor Mark if that's okay. And I said, sure, that's fine. If that's what makes you comfortable, you call me Pastor Mark. And you can call me Mark. You can call me... Just don't call me late for dinner. Call me anything, you know, whatever. You can call me Mark, you can call me Pastor Mark, you can call me Reverend Mark, Pastor Dooley. The, it really doesn't matter because I understand the intent of when people ask that kind of question. But if I were to stand here and say, when you see me out in that hallway, you address me as Reverend Dooley. Because that's that's who I am, and I want, I want, you, you owe me that respect. You see, when when that's my approach, when that's my perspective, that's focusing on the position. Besides just sounding weird to me, that's just focusing on the position and being more concerned about that. And Jesus could care less about our position. Don't be like the scribes and insist on making your position your status symbol. But then finally, Jesus could care less about our pretentious practices. The long prayers just for show certainly fit this category. Now, Let me hasten to add here that Jesus isn't necessarily condemning long prayers. Prayers that come from the heart can be short. Prayers that come from the heart can be long. Let me me try to illustrate some of this for you. Just just think about Jesus' prayers on the cross. They were short and they were to the point. I put three of them up there on the screen. So short that I can fit three prayers on one screen. In Luke 23, 34, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Then he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, 46. And look at the one in Matthew, that's recorded in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It it didn't go on for, you know, he he didn't pray a 10-minute prayer on the cross. He didn't preach a 30-minute sermon on the cross. These were short and to the point prayers. Short prayers can be effective but prayers that come from the heart can be long prayers as well. And notice that we also see that example in Jesus. Look at what Luke chapter 6 verse 12 says. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. All night is not a short prayer. When's the last time you prayed, stayed up all night long and prayed? I imagine none of us can raise our hand on that one. You know, we don't pray like Jesus prayed there. That, that, that was a long prayer. The difference here, I believe, is seen in the phrase back in Mark chapter 12. The difference is in the phrase, just for show. The long prayers of these scribes weren't genuine prayer. They were prayers probably intended to, to bend the will of the widows so that they could get them to do what they wanted and thereby devour them. As Danny Aiken, to quote him again, says, quote, I have no doubt that their prayers were eloquent. Jesus, however, judged them empty. Better a few fumbling words from a humble heart than a marvelous oration from a proud heart. End quote. Watch your praying, friends. Make sure it's from a humble heart of gratitude in response to God's grace, not from show. Jesus could care less about our pretentious practice. We need to jettison all those things from our life. Otherwise, we are no different than these scribes that he is roundly condemning here in the first part of our passage. But in contrast to these sacrilegious scribes was this wonderful widow that we see. In her, we see some giving principles illustrated. So let's turn our attention to the second part of the passage, verses 41 through 44. This passage really seems to be quite distinct from the one that comes before. It seems almost odd that Jesus is de- that Mark is detailing Jesus' condemnation of the scribes here, and then he turns abruptly to some activity that's going on in the temple area. But the link between the two passages is the widow. Perhaps this poor widow who's in the temple to give her gift had had her own house devoured by some sly, slick-talking scribe. If that's the case, that makes the gift that this widow is giving a rather spectacular gift, that she's lost it all, yet there she is still giving back to the Lord. The setting here in verses 41 through 44 is what's known as the the court of women in the temple complex. Think of the temple as a series of courts. The innermost courts was where the Holy of Holies was was located where only the high priest could enter, and then only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Outside and around that was what was known as the court of priests where sacrifices were offered on what was called the brazen altar. And then there was a small court beyond that known as the court of Israel where Jewish men who weren't priests were able to enter. And as you continue to move outward through the series of courts, you come to the court of women, and then that was followed by the court of Gentiles. We're in the court of women, is is the setting here in verses forty one through forty four. And in that court there were thirteen trumpet shaped chests that surrounded the walls where people could place various offerings. Each chest had an inscription on it that that designated the purpose of the offering. There was it was about a two hundred square foot area, and nine of those thirteen boxes were for offerings that were prescribed in the law, they were mandatory. The other four were for voluntary or free will offerings that people could give. There's no way to be sure which of those thirteen boxes that this widow was going to, regardless though, notice what the scripture says. It says that Jesus watched. He watched what was taking place. That's an interesting word. It's the Greek word theoreto. T-H-E-O-R-E-O. It's where we get our English word theater from. It suggests that a show is taking place that's going on here. People are wanting other people to see what they're doing. It's no different than earlier in the service as the offering plate was passing by. If someone, as the offering plate came in front of them, stood up and said, my check has four digits on it today, and put it in. And as the offering plate went by someone else, they said, I use my app, and I gave $596 today instead of putting it in the offering plate. And we began to announce to everyone what we were doing. We'd look at them, and we're like, What is wrong with that person? But that that would be a show. And that's exactly what Jesus was watching. He was watching the show as, as everybody was there. As verse 41 says, many rich people were putting in large sums. Well, how did anyone know? Because it was being announced. And they were letting them know look at how much I love God. Look at what I'm doing for the Lord. This wasn't genuine heartfelt giving. This was pretentious showiness, just like with the scribes. Apparently, they were pretty good teachers because the people were acting just like them. What a contrast this widow is to all these others. We're told she was poor, and look at verse 42. It says, she dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. That's the CSB translation. Look at the King James. I'll put it up there on the screen. It says, she threw in two mites which make a farthing. She threw in two mites which make a farthing. I imagine most of us aren't current on our British currency. Here, here's a picture of a farthing. Let me put the picture up there. No, no, notice the date on the picture. I think it's going to go up there. It's supposed to go up there. The picture of the coin. It's not on the back screen though. <laughs> so there you see it. So she, there's, there's the picture of the coin there. Notice closely the date. 1956. The Brits ceased to make, far, to make farthings in 1956, and they demonetized it in 1961. Farthing comes from an old English word that means fourth part. So a farthing was literally worth one-fourth of a penny. That's how little it was. And, and a, mite, a mite was one-eighth of a penny. It takes four farthings to, to make a cent. By the way... I started looking that up, and I noticed that you can still buy a farthing from 1956 today on Etsy. It'll only cost you (laughs) $30.81. And so if you do the math, that means that you're paying 12,324 times the value of that coin just to be able to say you have a farthing. And the mite is worth even less than that. It takes two mites to make a farthing. A mite is the equivalent of one-eighth of a penny. In terms of quantity, this woman is giving very, very little. But as we're going to see in terms of quality, she is giving so, so much. There are other calculations that that are offered that don't make it quite so dire. Some scholars will say that a mite was the equivalent of 1% of a denarius, uh, which is a day's wage, if that's more accurate, that would certainly be worth more than one quarter of a penny, but it would still represent a pretty meager amount, 1% of what you would make in, in one day. Uh, I think, you know, regardless of what we say this was worth, there are some principles for us here principles toward giving. And, and, and I just want to detail three of the prominent ones that, that I see here. There are probably more than this, but let me just detail quickly three of them. I pray that this both encourages and challenges you today. I, I pray it encourages you in your current giving, but I pray it challenges you to greater faithfulness in your future giving. What are those principles? Well, principle number one is the spirit of the gift determines the value, not the amount. The spirit of the gift determines the value, not the amount. Notice that Jesus said, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Let's understand what he's saying there. He is not saying that she gave more than any of them individually. This is worded in such a way that Jesus is saying she has put in more than all of them collectively. You take what everybody else has given, you add it all up, And this little widow and her two mites is worth far more than what all of everybody else has put in, added together. God looks at the heart whenever we give. He knows the level of sacrifice that we're making. And he knows when we're simply giving from what we can afford to give. And that really leads us to principle number two. And that is that it is sacrifice that pleases God, not contribution. Let me illustrate this by taking you back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 24. In that chapter, we begin with David taking a census of Israel and it displeases God. As a result, punishment comes from God. David cries out to God and he begs for mercy. And so he's instructed to go and set up an altar on the threshing floor of Arunah, The Jebusite, maybe you remember this passage. And he's told to to make an offering there. He he does that. He goes to Aruna's threshing floor and he says, I'm I'm going to make an offering there. And Aruna is is so uh, thrilled that the king of Israel would come and offer a sacrifice where he is, and he says, That is wonderful. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to give you the oxen, I'm going to give you the wood, I'm going to donate everything you need for the sacrifice you want to offer. And look at 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 24 David says no I insist on buying it from you for a price for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing David said very kind of you Aruna, but we're not having it because this has to cost me I'm the one who has to make the sacrifice and so this is on my dime this is not going to be on your dime how many times though Have we all offered God gifts that cost us nothing? We give from our abundance, and we don't even miss it. It may even be a sizable gift, but it's not a sacrificial gift. Missionary Paul Beals in the devotional Our Daily Bread once made a distinction between contributions and sacrifices when he was commenting on this passage that we're looking at today in Mark chapter 12. The wealthy people, he explained, were making contributions, but this widow was making a sacrifice. And then this is what he said. Let me just read it to you. He said, quote, I don't know if my wife and I have ever given sacrificially. Oh, we thought we were, once we even took some money out of savings to give to a special project, but it didn't jeopardize our livelihood, I guess I have to say we really don't know what it means to give sacrificially. We've been making contributions." I read that and I'm a little convicted because I wonder if I have to agree with him. And I wonder if I have to say my wife and I don't really know what it means to give sacrificially. Have we ever jeopardized our livelihood? By giving, and we've given some pretty good gifts along the way through 36 years of marriage, but have we ever really sacrificed? Have we ever really jeopardized our livelihood? What about you today? Is your giving like this widow? Is it sacrificial? Or is it more like the rest of the people that Jesus was observing? Contributions from your abundance, something that doesn't hurt you at all to give that gift. It's sacrifice that pleases God. Not contribution. That's the giving principle that we see here. But there's one more, one final and rather obvious principle. Principle number three God doesn't need our giving. Rather, we need to give to God. God doesn't need our giving. We're the ones who need to give to Him. The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We don't give because God's going to go out of business if we don't give. We don't even give because our church is going to go out of business if we don't give. I remember an account from Years ago, this was pre-LBC, this didn't take place here at Le- Leonardtown Baptist, but a very godly man called me to come over to his home. So I went over and he had spreadsheets laid out all over his dining room table and he, he asked me to sit down as he began to, to walk me through them. He, he reminded me that he was retiring and he and his wife were going to be relocating to another state. And He also reminded me that he was the church's financial secretary and so he knew what everybody gave. And he said, Pastor, you need to understand that my wife and I give 17% of what this church takes in every week. 17% of it comes from us with, with my giving. And he said, when we move, that's gonna disappear. He said, and I've done the math. He said, I know what we have in savings, and I know what that'll make our income versus our budget be, and I want you to know that when you run the numbers, this church will have about nine months of life left. And after that, It's not gonna be able to to operate anymore. And I just felt like since we're gonna be moving in about two or three months, you needed to know that because that gives you about a year to begin circulating your resume so that you can find somewhere else to to be able to serve because the church isn't gonna be able to afford to, to pay you anymore. He's telling me all of this. And I thanked him for his concern. I thanked him for his faithfulness. I thanked him for his generosity. And then I reminded him, I said, Brother, this is not your church, this is not my church. This is the Lord's church, and we can trust the Lord to provide for his church. And the Lord more than provided for that church, bringing several families to pick up that slack. The same man came back to me two years later when he was in town to visit, and he said, Pastor, you sure were right. God more than provided for this church. You see, not only had we stayed afloat financially, but we had built a building in which we began to worship. God was good, and he provided for his church. Now, that man was a faithful saint of God, and and he meant well in his warning. But here's my point. God didn't need his giving, and God didn't need my giving, and he doesn't need our giving here at LBC either. That doesn't mean we shouldn't give. You know, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying stop giving to the church. You know, we don't, but what I'm saying is we don't give because, because God needs us to do it. We give because we need to do it. It develops trust within us. In fact, I would say this. And I will say it with 100% total and complete confidence. We are never more like God than when we give. I'm glad John Fields believes me. He's about the only one in here by the sound of that. We are never more like God than when we give. Can I get a bunch of amens? What is it that John 3.16 says? Quote it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave You know, we are never more like God than when we are giving. This widow demonstrates a Christ-likeness in her giving that we should all strive to emulate. Don't just give out of your surplus. Give at the point where there's some level of sacrifice. Whether that's a trip that can't be taken. A purchase that can't be made. An indulgence that has to be foregone. That's the kind of giving that's on par with this widow. I'm not saying we should never take trips, we should never, you know, have indulgences. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are times that God calls us to forgo those kinds of things so that we can support what He's called us to support. That's valuable giving. That's sacrificial giving. That's the kind of giving that we need to engage in for the health of our souls. This widow's might was her might. Her M-I-T-E was her M-I-G-H-T. There really is such a great contrast in this passage if you think about it. Unbridled greed is followed by unbelievable generosity. We see Jesus offer stern condemnation followed by swift commendation. So which of these two represents you today? Are you more like these scribes or are you more Like this widow, my prayer is that God leads us all to desire the character of this widow. She was a lady who truly understood the principle of sacrifice. Augustine, the great fourth and fifth century Christian theologian and philosopher, defined sacrifice this way: He said, "Quote: It's the surrender of something of value for the sake of something else." End quote. Let me say that again: It's the surrender of something of value for the sake of something else. This widow gave everything she had. So that she could gain everything God had to offer. And if you think about it, isn't this really just such a beautiful picture of the gospel? Jesus gave everything he had. He, he gave up the glory of heaven, and he came to die a, a cruel death in our place, shedding his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice. That is exactly what we've been focused on these last few weeks as we've walked through the Easter season. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And in so doing, he gained something else. He gained a people. He gained you and I, the church. He died to pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose as the first fruits of our promised resurrection, which is to come. As we said, sacrifice is the surrender of something of value for the sake of something else. Jesus surrendered something of ultimate value, his perfect, sinless life, and he did so for the sake of something else, or rather for the sake of someone else, for the sake of you. He loved you that much that he paid the debt that you owed. He died in your place. That, friends, is a savior worth trusting. Trust him and you will discover the source of your might, your M-I-G-H-T. It'll be the same as this widow's whose devotion and commitment to God was the source of her strength. Will you trust God in that kind of a fashion today? Or will you make a show of it like these scribes were doing? The choice is yours. Which path are you going to tread? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for this widow. We thank you for her testimony that though we don't know her name, Lord, one day those of us who know Jesus and will be in glory with you for all eternity will be with her as well. And Lord, how I look forward to meeting this widow someday. And being able to thank her for her example. And for her challenge, God, I pray that the challenge that she issues to every one of us today is one that we would all accept. Father, not just that we can say we gave more, not for any kind of giving reason, but for the health of our souls, Lord, that we will understand sacrifice and that we'll not only look to this widow, but, but beyond that, Lord, more importantly than that, we'll look to Jesus, the one who sacrificed it all. He sacrificed even more than this widow. He sacrificed everything, Father. And he did that for this widow. He did this. He did that for me. He did that for every person gathered here who will trust Jesus. And so I pray today for any who are here who have never trusted him. Lord, may this be the day of salvation. May this be the appointed time when they repent of their sin and they put their faith and trust in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.